The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. Today, freelance work and managing anxiety and depression. I'm a small business owner, which means I work from home a lot, I'm responsible for bringing in income, and my income can fluctuate from month to month or even year to year. If I don't sell, I don't earn. And what I experience is similar for lots of small business owners and freelancers out there. Even during the best economic times, depending on only yourself for your paycheck can be stressful. And while life untethered to an employer can bring freedom, it has some really big stressors. Money, for one. But freelancing or working from home can feel lonely and isolating. And many of the traditional milestones by which we measure our career and our professional growth just don't exist. There's no promotions. Instead, you're actually on almost constant job interview type situations in which you have to try to prove yourself. Trying to manage all these stressors while also dealing with a diagnosed mental health issue can be hard. Sure, you can sneak out for a therapy appointment in the middle of the day, but sometimes it can feel like the world is collapsing and you just don't have a safety net. Later in the show, we'll hear from the writer Ada Calhoun about her strategies for managing anxiety as a freelancer. But first, Chris Brogan. Chris is a New York Times bestselling author, business owner, he created the Story Leader System, and someone who suffers from clinical depression. You wrote, and I'm going to quote here, people with depression can be successful. Now, read that sentence again. I'm not saying successful people can be depressed, although that's true. I'm saying that people who suffer from depression can be successful even though they are depressed. A, I couldn't agree with you more, but B, why, Chris, did you want to sort of reframe the sentence to say that people who have depression, who are depressed, who may have chronic depression, da-da-da-da-da, can be successful? Well, I deal with a minor case of major clinical depression. So my diagnosis is major clinical depression, but I have kind of like the lower end of that scale. And um, I'm a, a person who's done all kinds of work as an entrepreneur, as an author, as a keynote speaker. Uh, I do a lot of consulting with big companies. And these two things coexist. And I guess a lot of what I do sort of as a way to help people figure out who they want to be when they grow up is I try to look for excuse removal systems. You know, I'm always looking for what excuses are in somebody's path. And so someone will say, well, you know, it can't be this. I deal with clinical depression. Clinical depression, different than feeling down in the dumps or depressed or whatever. Clinical depression is just a chemical thing. It's the same as diabetes. So some people take medicine for it. Some people take specifically insulin for it. Others just try not to eat too much cake. With depression, it's the same sort of thing. You have to 
deal with some meds most times. You have to deal with some lifestyle changes. And then beyond that, you can actually live whatever life you think you need to live. I mean, I mostly agree with you, but hasn't there surely been a time when you've been in a more severe, you know, away from, what did you say, mild, uh, when you've been in a more severe clinical phase where just getting out of bed has been hard? Absolutely. And, you know, the same with anyone with any kind of a medical difference or whatever. So someone with diabetes can go through a bad bout because, you know, something changes or they don't get their food in the right time frame and whatever. With depression, uh, there are definitely days where the bed is the best place for me to be. But it doesn't mean you can't have your career. It just means that you have to take extra steps, you know, and there's things that happen. You know, driving around with the brake on is kind of how I like to explain depression sometimes. Sometimes when I'm dealing with depression, it's like ripping that parking brake up as high and tight as you can go and then still trying to drive your car. It groans and it barely gets anywhere. And you're like, oh, well, that's how it is. With depression, what happens is, you know, you everything is a lot harder to do. Everything is slower to do, et cetera. But you can still get it done. And, you know, I've given keynote speeches in the midst of like some bad depression. And what's happened is, you know, I didn't sleep very well the night before and I didn't go to every one of the meet and greets and I've become the absolute best person in the universe at the Irish exit. Sometimes I'm so good at it. I don't even enter, (laughs) you know, people just think I was there. You use the hashtag, right? Like people you tweet, you use the hashtag. You were there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'll be like, Hey, I'm over by the uh, dips. Where are you? And you know, (laughs) I'm in my bedroom you know, rocking back and forth. So, I mean, you can do it. And I I guess I just wanted to point that out to humans because I think a lot of times we're looking for somebody to come and, you know, stamp a stamp on us somewhere that says you don't have to do this because you are somehow flawed or dented. And I just think we can all operate with a little bit of dents in us. I agree. And I I think that one of the things that I always try to convey to people, because I have anxiety and depression, I think you do too, is like, I'm a professional, damn Mm -hmm. it. Like, I how I feel on the inside is not how you will get me if you're paying for my time. And I have mostly learned over the many years to fake it. You know, a lot of uh, the best uh, comedians and, and entertainers have some level of depression in their life. They have you know, clinical depression. Robin Williams famously did and, you know, uh, passed away, you know, related to that. Um, but most of the people you think are the funniest people in the world also deal with that. One of the things that you kind of get free of charge with depression and anxiety is a lot more uh, self-awareness, a lot of self-deprecation. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to kind of look down at your belly button and explain to the world in which ways you're flawed, you know, let me tell you all my flaws. Um, they're free. And so I think that the, uh, I, I think these can all be superpowers though. I think that we can operate with these and people who uh, don't deal with depression don't understand how to get up from failure. People with depression, we fail like every day. So you might as well just keep going because it's just, you, you just kind of expect it and you're just going to keep going. It's a, it's a yes and, not a, oh, well, wait a minute. I'm going to reframe that because I don't want like a bunch of haters to email me and be like, what? You're saying that okay. everyone who doesn't have depression or, you know, they're a bunch of whims. I'm with you that I think that um, mental illness, like any disability or difference, gives you a resiliency that is really important. Sure. I don't disagree um, with that. And... Uh, 
I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm just so there with you on so many levels, you know, sometimes performing when you're in a bad state is actually the easiest thing you can do. Going out to dinner with a friend is the hardest, right? I mean, that's, I mean, that's a very good point too, is that really intense one-on-one interaction is a lot more challenging than standing around on stage somewhere and blurting out your dumb things. And I mean, there's just so many of our jobs that we can do. Um, that we can sort of do not necessarily on autopilot, but you know we can kind of chug through them and get through the the discrete tasks. But sometimes it's human interaction that's really tricky, and other times it's uh, you know for me like when I'm dealing with depression forms. I mean I'm looking over at mail that just came in today that probably won't get opened for a oh, few days forms. just because Bills. for whatever reason that's not going to work. Bills aren't you know that helpful when you're kind of down in it. But um, you know work work is the thing that we do. Have you always been depressed? Like, can you remember when you had your first bout of depression? Even if you didn't know that's what um, it was? I don't, I don't know when I really caught up to the diagnosis of clinical depression. It was, it was very later in life. So I don't know if I was just lucky before then or what, but I'm pretty sure I probably had the black dog a lot longer. But the first uh, anxiety instance, I, I was pretty sure I had a heart attack. Mm. I don't remember. I was on pr- public transit somewhere. I forget where. And I felt like a cold sweat just shoot down the inside of my body. And, you know, you hear people say that it was a cold sweat and it came out of nowhere. But like legitimately, this felt sort of like someone took a cup of water and poured it down the inside of me. Um, And I went, oh, that's weird. And so I went to the doctor, to the hospital, actually, the emergency room. And it it was really weird. Like the reaction I got was kind of like, you didn't have a heart attack, you big stupid idiot. And I was like, well, that's not a really good, you know, I think you want me to come in, not just guess that I didn't. You know, and that's when someone taught me what anxiety attacks were. And I was like, oh. And so after a little while, when I finally went and saw a shrink and, you know, you do some diagnosis work and all that, they were like, nope, you got that. You got depression. And when we sort of went through a whole bunch of questions and some work, it's like, well, it's kind of a severe one, but you have sort of the lower end of that. I guess they sort of split it into two. And and I don't ultimately know because there's no numbers that go with it. It's it's a little bit of it's an art. A blood sugar. It is a science. You know, it's funny though because I was going to ask you about that later, but I'm going to bring it up now because you you say a lot like I have mild clinical depression, and you've already said that twice in our interview. It's almost like you're um, minimizing your depression. Hundred percent downplaying why? it. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're kind because, of funny about it. You have silly names for it. Yeah. Like why? Well, so the challenge i think again you know i never say i'm depressed i say i deal with depression Mm. um i I just interviewed a guy who uh, was in his last few days with cancer Mm. and i had no idea that he was in his last few days because the last time the doctor said he had a few months to live he outlasted another whole year and so this time they said it and they said well we really mean it this time he said well we'll see and when I interviewed him, I put the whole uh, interview up and I called it I'm Dying. And he sent me a message. He goes, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you change it to, from I'm Dying to Facing Death? And I was like, oh, my gosh, that is so – he's like a super Buddhist. And I was like, oh, that totally makes yeah. sense because he's – you know, dying is throwing a label on you. I'm not depressed. I just deal with depression. Um, I downplay it because – I don't want it to be given a bigger role in my life than me. My ego won't allow that. And I think I'm much more successful uh, than my depression. My depression has has uh, stopped me far fewer times than my ability to fight with it has let me get to where I need to go. 
Say, say more about that, because I, I, I truly believe that my anxiety has made me who I am and that I am awesome because of my depression. Like, it's truly a gift in my life, mostly, um, except when I'm at the ER thinking I'm dying. Uh, so, so how has learning to fight with your depression or negotiate with it made you better? See, negotiate would be closer. I mean, I carry it with, and I'll, I'll tell you, there's an example of this. Yeah, you travel um, with it every really, day. It's part of who you are, right? Oh, my totally. gosh. I wish I could leave it somewhere. <laughs> I tried. Um, off at bus stations everywhere. Um, there's a book by Dr. Matthew McKay called Self-Esteem, and it's a, it's a really old-timey book, and you know it's worth reading, even though it's super bigger than it has to be for a book. And in Self-Esteem, he talks a lot about the inner critic, and he basically kind of labels this concept of inner critic that we all know. We just didn't know it had a name. And inner critic's the person that says, like, I don't know why you're going to start this new thing. You always quit. And that's the inner critic. And that's a real, like, it's a phenomena that we, can, we, we can't put it, you know, can't touch a part of your brain and find that critic. But he, it's in there. And he said what the inner critic, as best anyone can tell, what the inner critic is trying to do, it's trying to save you from feeling bad or dumb or stupid or some other negative thing. It thinks it's protecting you. So this part of your brain that we call the inner critic or this part of your you know, programming or operating system is saying, I'm going to make you feel bad before someone else does because we think that's a better idea. And what Dr. McKay says is he says- I thought that was my parents' says, job, but okay. <laughs> also true. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, our inner critic is always looking for people to back it up too. So um, Dr. McKay says, but the only way to beat it is not to fight it. He says, you have to thank it. You have to say, oh, man, thank you so much. I so totally get what you're trying to help me with here. That's so good. Thanks. I'm going to do my own thing, but thank you so much for that. Talk us through what your depression or not day-to-day sort of work life looks like. Like you don't show up at an office that someone else owns and report for duty at the same time every day. Like what is your what does your work life look like? Thank the sweet Buddha I don't. <laughs> um, no, I'm fairly unemployable at this point. I run my own company. I run two different companies. One's called Owner Media Group and one's called Chris Brogan Media. In my roles, the one real challenge that I've put before myself is that all the things I do professionally require an immense amount of creativity. Mm-hmm. So I do business advisory work. I do digital marketing work, content marketing work. I do lots of content creation work. And you know, when it comes to that, like creative stuff, writing, you know, so sometimes when you're down in it, that's the thing that you really, you know, you feel a little tapped about. And people, creatives have different ways that they kind of interact with people when it comes to what they, their output is. And, you know, money for sure is one of, is probably my number one trigger for outward things that make me feel depressed. Because I just keep reminding people it's chemical. Like I don't get a choice. Some days everything's great and I still am feeling it and I'm still going to feel it. Uh, But, you know, kind of uh, circumstantial things, money is one. The other is uh, you get a lot of opportunities as a creative person to feel like a kid at their seven-year-old birthday and no one came. You know, you sent all the invites to all your classmates and no one shows up. You get that feeling a lot when you make creative stuff. So you asked about my day. My day is mostly creating stuff. Uh, My days are never super full and busy on Mm. purpose. Um, I schedule my days to about 40%. And that's a, that's a skill that I put together to say, 
and I and I advocate for this to people who don't deal with depression. I think everyone overschedules themselves immensely so that they run into these weird, crazy situations where they're all talking about how busy they are. How did you learn the hard way or did you learn the hard way um, about what worked for you and what didn't in terms of managing your time, running your business as someone who gets depressed? Um like a lot of things I've done in my life, it's it's error and error. Um, you know, I don't know that there's any trial. I think it's just I just fail all the time. And so what I figured out was when I say yes to somebody when I'm feeling, let's say, neuronormative to make it sound scientific, when I feel like a normal human being probably does, I just do the thing. When I don't feel like that, you know, I'll give you, here's a real world example from this week. So a couple, three days ago, someone pings me and says, hey, can you record this video? We're going to, all of these people are going to get together. And we're going to make a little virtual conference and we're going to do it right now. And I just need 20 minutes. I'm like, yeah, sure. Glad, you know, and I get over to start to do it. And they say, oh, one thing we needed to have a white background. And I'm like, uh, you know, I have a studio and it has a blue background and it has a bookshelf and stuff. It's, you know, it doesn't look like that. So I'm like, now I got to go find a thing. Depression is everything you think right after this just was supposed, I was just supposed to push record and be done shortly after. Depression is like, and now I'm going to have to do this thing. And I write back this little whiny email, like white. Why does it this have to be a so white hard. background? Yeah, exactly. I got them what they wanted, but I complained the whole way and felt grumpy about it the whole way because depression. So that's how it works. I mean, for me. And so what I learned was, you know, if I can do more of the things that I really want to do, and if I could be, re- I'll, I'll give you one super, it's not a secret because everybody can know it. The thing that gets me out of depression faster than anything in the world is just helping other people do something. Mm. If I help other people and like lift them up in some way or make them feel better, that gets me out of depression. But I, I, I let me put like a little asterisk and a warning and you got to go read the bottom of this label. This doesn't, it's not the same as love. You know how you have to like love yourself before you can actually love other people? It just doesn't work right the other mm-hmm. way. Um, you can help other people while you're still depressed. It's okay. You know, I tend to be a pretty reclusive and and introverted person on a good day. And when I'm feeling really depressed, I will totally withdraw from people. I will be mean to the people who love me so that they get angry at me. And then I will just disappear from my work world. Um, And if I didn't, if the people that I work with closely didn't know that I had depression I could be in real trouble because I, you know, there are days sometimes, and again, I mean, I run a business, I drive business development and sales for this small company that that pays for, you know, a bunch of people. If I'm in bed, not able to do something really small, like answer an email, that has that has ripple effects, not to mention the fact that I'm a, a parent, but I have found it necessary for my team to know. And it doesn't happen often, but there have been times where I have had to say, like, I'm sorry, I'm really depressed right now. And they know to say, okay, can I take this over? And I'll be back to them in two, three days, because God bless, you know, antidepressants. But I've had to employ that level of radical transparency. And I'm, I'm curious how that works for you. Oh, I see stuff like that all the time, but um, I don't have any sense of self-preservation when it comes to any of that. Like, I don't, 
I don't think, and I could be totally wrong, like maybe the entire business world has like a little asterisk next to my name and like, you know, Disney says, well, you know, we worked with him in the past, but now we know he deals with depression. We won't call him this week. Uh, maybe that's happening. I don't know. There could be a secret blackball list, but I don't feel like it's true. And I feel like every time I tell, tell people I deal with depression, the only thing I end up having to do is sort of explain to them what that really means. Because the, the side challenge is that they accidentally think it means like I'm saying I'm down in the dumps. So I don't mind telling anyone I deal with depression. Um, what I always say is, I said, it, I, I very, very quickly rattle out. It's a lot like diabetes for me. Yeah. You know, I just have to take my meds, do smart things, and I'm good. But, you know, if I slow down, I'm going to let you know I'm slowing down. It happens about once every 16 months in any kind of way that anyone else will really notice it. What routines keep you on track when you're in a down cycle? None. I have none. I, I you know, I, business development is, I mean, I, I probably need a better routine for business development. That's that's for sure. Um, but I, I tend to, I have, I have a system that I created as one of the courses that we built called the 20 minute plan jumpstart. And in that thing, I have a system where I work three hours a day, every day on my business. I guess that's the closest I have to a routine, but that, that three hours, if pretty you basically, methodical and good. Yeah. Well, except there is no specific time of day. It is essentially nine checkboxes every single day. And it's like if you drew kind of like a, a flattened wide side of a Rubik's Cube, so it's nine mm -hmm. squares basically, I write uh, – and those nine squares account for 20 minutes each. So those three hours is broken into three sets of three 20-minute blocks. Mm -hmm. Makes sense? So um, I book those three hours to grow my business in some way, develop you know the, the stuff around my business in some way, but they can happen any time. And every now and again, I can fudge one and just say, you know what, the way the day is going, I think eating a sleeve of Oreos instead of the entire package is going to be a win. But but I'm so with you. I mean, and who cares? I mean, are there times of day that are better for you generally? Uh, yes. So uh, when I'm dealing with depression, you know, uh, late morning starts happen whether or not I want to. So I'll wake up really early, but I will get, I won't really get anything done until at least 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. um, when... I'm not dealing with depression. I wake up early and I, I get a free extra few hours that way. I don't, I'm not a creature of habit. Um, I think because this, I think this comes from sort of the discipline of my writing. So I write a lot. The one thing you could say that I do for sure is at least 2000 words a day, a day. and uh, a wow. day. And the way I do that is I make it completely requirement proof. Someone will say to me, I have to have this exact paper and this kind of pen and this light, or I can only write at coffee shops and I can only write if no one's making noise and all these things. I can write anywhere. I'm like a military person. I, I You know how they sleep mm -hmm. 20 minutes here and there whenever they need it? I could do that with writing. And so that's the one, only one thing I can say is systematic, but nothing I do is time bound. I guess that's what I say when I don't really have great discipline. I have nothing that's time bound. Uh, well, I, well, and I'm reflecting again because what you're what you're describing to me is someone who's really disciplined. I mean, to write two thousand words a day, to take your little Rubik's cube blocks and work on your business, takes tremendous discipline. You're totally downplaying it. Yes, I'm an unreliable narrator, and I think that's true. But no, I think the reason. The reason I say that too is that, you know, we hear this term virtue signaling a lot. 
you know, so you see someone standing around with their $20 bill that they're handing over to the Salvation Army person or something, but they don't let go of that 20 until enough people see it go in and that kind of a thing. Well, I think that um, people that are really, really into productivity, for instance, I call that noble masturbation because it feels good and it seems like it's a good idea. But, you know, it's not the same thing as real work. And so I, I don't tell people I'm into productivity. I'm not into productivity. I'm into getting my work done. I love that. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, we, we talked a little bit about money at the beginning, but I want to hear your advice for listeners who may find themselves freelancing, who are worriers, who have anxiety, who have occasional bouts of depression, and who are saying, I can't be a freelancer. I can't pursue my creative passion. I got to stay employed by someone else because I'll never be able to manage the uncertainty. Well, the weirdest thing about this, and I've, I've, I'm sure everyone says something variant of the same, is that if you are trusting one employer, that's the opposite of feeling certain mm -hmm. because that one employer ch makes choices that have nothing to do with your merit. We accidentally think that we're, we're employed by the grace of our hard work. But we're not. We're just employed because someone needs what we do at that point, or there's enough money that to afford the something that we do, or that you know there's there's it's a, a worthwhile expense or whatever. But like letting one human entity or one small group of people decide your future is a lot less uh, easy to manage than having your you know the money you need to live split across five different clients. Right. So that if any one of them leaves you, you still have 80 percent of your revenue. Diverse and portfolio. So, yeah. You know, it, it's always been surprising to me that people think that. Well, I'll, I'll give you an easy real world example. My mom worked for the telephone company for 29 and three quarter years. At 30, you could retire. And when you retire, you get your full pension. They let her go at 29 and three quarter years. They stuffed it in her face. My mom, who had been nothing but fiercely loyal to the phone company. It's terrible. And so my mom, who thought I should follow in her footsteps and do that same kind of job, I said, are you crazy? They just spit on you. And so I've had, you know, multiple bosses for a while. And guess what? Sometimes I run out of money entirely, like bank account down to two digits or three digits. But unlike a job job where you only get the money you get every week or two weeks or whatever they decide to pay you, I could just go find some way to make some more. And I think that that's the beauty. So my advice is you're a lot safer if you have the controls to earn. So, so cash flow planning is not something that keeps you up at night. I'm taking, <laughs> I'm taking it. No, because I mean, right now, as of this interview, I mean, I'm at, I'm at the bottom of where I've ever been in my, in my finances, like the bottom, bottom, everything. Else. I had a two and a half year stint of depression, just kind of draining away all my savings mm. and me kind of being like, well, you know, I still have a little money. And I wouldn't have to try so hard for clients. Well, now I'm at the point that's like, who do I have to kiss around here to get a job? Because I'll do it. And so what will you do? Just earn money. I'll just go find people I can help. You know, that's it's the way of business. Business is, I know something that you don't know, I'll help you do it. I can help you set up this thing, I'll help you do it. There's a lot of people suddenly thrust into working remotely and marketing remotely who uh, I've been teaching one form of podcasting or another since 2006. Now they want to be podcasters. So 14 years after I started doing this, they're like, oh, how do you do that? And so I'll show them. There's just always ways, you know, there's always things you can do. And people forget 
that the the thing that they do easily is the thing that's really hard for someone else, and that's where money comes from. Um, Chris Brogan, thank you so much. It was so much my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Someone else who understands the trials that come with the freelance life, even when a certain level of success has been reached, is Ada Calhoun. I sat down with Ada to talk about the pros and cons of self-employment and working remotely and what it means for your success and your mental health. I wanted to start because I think I think you talk about this. We we both were the same age. We both grew up working in media. And I think that we both worked for powerful women older than us in media and um or and observed them certainly. And they sort of I don't know if this was true for you, like they seemed to have it all. I was the executive assistant when I was my very first job out of college, um, for a film company, very chic job, paid nothing. And um I was the executive assistant to the vice president of publicity and marketing. And um, Sarah Eaton, she was a great boss. I admired her so much. And she went to screenings and she had lunch with the New York Times and she got her hair done at a very fancy salon and I booked it all. And I just was like, wow, this is who I want to be, you know? (laughs) And that's what I thought I would be, you know? Like I was starting out as an executive assistant, the path forward just didn't, seemed pretty clear. And that world just sort of vanished, right? Like those, those VPs don't have, certainly don't have executive assistants anymore. It's much harder to get a great job with great benefits and have lunch with the New York Times or have lunch with anyone (laughs) in media. What's, what's your experience been? Does that resonate with you? It does resonate with me. I, I started out as an intern and then you know, worked my way up. I got to editor in chief of like an online magazine. It was about, I guess, 15, 16 years ago. And that was what I expected, right? Like you, there were these very clear things like you go from assistant to associate to editor to senior editor. And I don't see those jobs existing anymore. That's that ladder, I feel like has totally collapsed. And now it's like everyone is doing everything. And it's all from home. It's all freelance. There are no benefits. There's there's no ladder. Definitely n- nothing that takes you into a place that has um, any kind of security net. Um, there's. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think I know one person. I know a lot of people in media who has like an office with a door you close, and then the phone and the assistant, all of that, uh, and health insurance and dental insurance. It just feels like it's like a Mad Men era relic almost that that idea everyone's just on their own in their own little bubble taking care of everything uh and it's 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 a little scary i one of the things that you were very brave in talking about was the embedded fear and um the fear that sort of didn't go away even though i mean people can look at you and you're you're a name you're a best-selling author but you're very open i think still that there is a fear that goes along with the freelance life of a writer, the freelance life of anyone, frankly. Can you yeah. can you talk about that? Are you still scared, even though you just had a really successful book come out? 
Um, I'm less scared right this minute about that. I mean, there are many mm-hmm. other things in this world right this moment to be very scared about. Well, indeed. Um, and so it feels very surreal, like, uh, just to be talking about anything else. Um, but I do feel really lucky that I had that book happen when it, when I did, because I've, I've never had money in the bank before, like the last couple of years. I, I never was not paycheck to paycheck. I didn't, you know, I've actually gotten rid of credit card debt and all that. And that feels it, it feels much better. I, I know that sounds really obvious, but like I, it does, um, there is, there is some comfort in it, but I, I don't feel that far away from it. And I feel like in a year it could, it, the stability and the cushion could all be gone. And that was really what the book came out of was I had had this summer where I had had three freelance gigs fall apart for different reasons, all in a very short period of time. And that was the money we were going to use to pay off our credit card debt and get us through the next six months. And it just wasn't there. So suddenly we had all this debt and we, I had no way to make any money. And I asked my editor of the, my previous two books, which had done okay. I mean, they'd for, mm-hmm. for kind of an indie uh, or um, an independent publisher and all that, they had, I, I thought, done pretty well. And they got in a lot of press, but he, he said this thing and he said, like, sales track is sales track. Like, we love you. Of course, we'd want to do something else. But, you know, the last book didn't really do what we thought it would. So then I was like, oh, great. Well, that was like, my plan was to sell another book. And I was like, oh, now we can't, I won't be able to do that. I don't know about this ghostwriting thing. If I freelance, it's like $200 a piece. And, uh, and it was really, I thought it was over in that moment. That was like 2017. I thought my career was done. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just pausing because I'm feeling, I'm feeling that anxiety. Um, I'm feeling that anxiety with you. Were you still the breadwinner? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a wonderful husband. He's really supportive and fantastic, but he is also like a performance artist and musician and he has many jobs. I mean, he, he teaches, he, um, works as a box office manager. He does front desk stuff, other places. Like he has many, many jobs, um, but none of them pay very much and they're all freelance. So it was sort of, I've been the one who's brought in most of the money every year. Did you ever feel like you needed more structure in your work life? Was that any, at all ever part of the motivation to look for a corporate job? Or is that something you just never needed? Yeah, every once in a while, I would daydream about it. I would have these fantasies of like, going into the break room and getting a cup of coffee and going back to my desk and sitting at the desk and having my like, landline phone and <laughs> my like desktop computer. And, um, and I would dream about it and having coworkers you'd banter with. And I mean, it's been so long since I did those things, but I, I still remember them in a, in a fond and romantic way, much as one might look back on an, a, like an idyllic childhood in the countryside or something. They, but it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like actually something within reach. Hey you, I'm Andrew Seaman. Do you want a new job? Or do you want to move forward in your career? Well, you should listen to my weekly show called Get Hired with Andrew Seaman. We talk about it all. And it's waiting for you, yes you, wherever you get your podcasts. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. If you don't mind me asking, because you've been open about your anxiety and your mental health, 
as a freelancer, you don't always have the best insurance, right? Um, oh, yeah. How do you handle therapy, mental health, um, paying for self-care when you are a freelancer? How has that been? Well, I haven't, I did free, I did therapy for a while, like 15 years ago. And then I've gone back for short periods of time. And I've said like, uh, because it's of course not covered by insur- insurance for me. Um, I've said like, Oh, I can afford to come like five times. Please help me try to fix this mm-hmm. major problem as best you can in five times. And I, I fortunately I have the most wonderful therapist. I love her so much. And, um, and she really gets a lot done in a short period of time. And I've, I've gone back more recently and, um, and she's just been, she's been great. Um, but I pay for my own insurance. We have like the bronze plan from the state exchange. It's $1,200 a month Mm. for the whole family. Um, and it's, you know, and it's not great. Like there's a high deductible and it doesn't cover things like mental health care. So again, it's been pretty catch as catch can where I can, you know, I can go, if I have a little money squirreled away to, to do something like therapy, you know, self-care stuff, like, I, I don't, I actually just wrote a piece about self-care and um, and it, how it doesn't actually work a lot of the times. Like, a lot of it feels rather lonely um, to me. Uh, because, really? And what really helps me the most is is being with other people, um, helping other people doing things that feel kind of slightly virtuous. Like, that, to me, actually is, is, a, is more of a mood uh, booster than, like being in a, um, getting a manicure or whatever. (laughs) So I want to talk about, um, about midlife because the real thrust of your work is new because we hear a lot about how difficult it is. And it is very difficult for young people just starting out to get their footing financially and career wise for all the reasons we've talked about the gig economy, the lack of security, Um, I do a lot of work in my day job with AARP, and there's also tremendous data about financial insecurity for seniors. Yes. There aren't pensions like there used to be, et cetera, et cetera. You and I are both Gen Xers. We're we're in our early 40s, and we get ignored. We're often called the middle children, you know, the the stunted middle children of the generation. The Jan Brady generation. What is your position on, and I want to zoom in on anxiety, about the effect of our current financial high wire acts on our mental health. And, and what did you learn in your reporting journey talking to so many midlife people? Well, I talked to a couple hundred middle-aged women around the country and almost all of them had anxiety about money and anxiety about work. And, um, and they just felt like the, the pressures on them to take care of other people were, were massive. And then the pressure on them to bring home enough money without a lot of support, uh, or I guess help. Like, I, I feel like a lot of them talked about their employers not offering flex time or mm. benefits or, um, or, or just kind of any sense that they could, they were safe or could rely on, the company to have their back if there was an illness, for example, or if they had to take leave to go have a baby or take care of an aging parent or whatever it was, there was so much fear. And and it was sad to me to learn that actually a lot of the fear was very well founded. Looking at the numbers, looking at what what uh, employers were offering, we're not crazy if we if we feel like 
there's no stability in our jobs or if we feel like there's a ton of pressure on us. There just is. And I think that there's a tremendous psychological component here. You know, you actually talked about ACEs, adverse childhood events. Um, This is, again, in my day job, um, I run a, a cause marketing firm. We work with CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics on trying to socialize this term, ACEs. It's a mouthful, but the basic idea is adverse childhood events has far-reaching effects, and ACEs are everywhere. There aren't certain kinds of families that have ACEs. When you wrote about a lot of us growing up in the 70s and 80s, growing up with ACEs that went unacknowledged, I went back to my numerous ACEs, and, um, you know, from the time that I was, you know, sent off on my own to summer camp at eight by my parents who were not speaking to each other and molested on a train to, you know, a van blowing up um, at another summer camp, you know, to, to just the the numerous things, because frankly, even though my childhood was, was technically fine, there was no conscious uncoupling back then. My parents waged war with me just parenting was different. And I think kids were often collateral damage. And so for me, um, you know, my father would just not send money to my mother Mm -hmm. when he hated her. So today, when I, as someone who runs my own business, I guess I'm not technically a freelancer anymore. I own a small business. You know, today with something like coronavirus, where half my contracts dry up. Yeah. Even though I've done lots of therapy, there is that feeling of dad's not paying the mortgage this month. Right. Um, is that unique? I, I, at the risk of sounding like a stereotype of a, a whiny white middle class no. middle aged lady, like is that is that unique to us? How is it something we carry? Is it how do we work through that? Because we, you know, I can't stop coronavirus. I can't change my childhood. I can try to observe it and work with it. I mean, I think we can acknowledge that that all of us, and this this goes for um, for people who are, you know every race and every, um, every level of income and all that, this, it doesn't mean that you didn't experience trauma in your childhood. ACEs are everywhere. That's, I mean, that is, I'm going to do a PSA for the CDC. ACEs don't discriminate, right? No, it's right. Every family often or any kind of family. And the study that this came out of was, was done at Kaiser Permanente and it, it was done with people who had enough money to have jobs in this, in this, area and um and who had health insurance and and what they did in the study um as you know is they looked at these childhood adverse childhood experiences against the medical records Mm. it was like ten thousand people it was like some some huge number that they studied and these were mostly middle class people and if they had more than four traumatic experiences their rates of things like diabetes heart disease depression um, suicide, all of this, uh, went, went up and up and up exponentially. I think it's like, if you have more than four aces, I think it's, you're like 1200 times more likely to commit suicide. And it's, it's not because people can't like handle it or, uh, you know, or that they, they're weak or something. It's because these things take an actual physical toll on your body and your brain and they rewire things when they happen. And it, it can, and it's something like, you know, having, uh, being sexually assaulted or, 
um, or that sense of we don't have any money or divorce or fire or whatever it is. And I, I just think we have to acknowledge that, that that is playing a big part in every aspect of our lives in middle age, that that, that lingering trauma, it just it doesn't just go away. It, it's haunting. Um, and I think it's especially haunting sometimes with money. It, um, I remember my mother used to say like very second wave fe- feminist type of thing. She used to say, um, you know, you have to make your own money. No one else is going to help you. And it was not bad advice, right? She didn't want me to rely on a man for money. She felt like she'd had to learn that lesson herself and she had made her own money and she was proud of it. And she wanted that for me. But the message that I got was that if I didn't make my own money, I was just doomed. Like I was doomed. And then once I had a family, I was like, they were doomed too. My baby was like going to starve. Everybody was going to wind up on the street if I didn't get enough freelance work that month. And it, it, it just gets down into you. And so many of the women I interviewed, they, I would ask them like, what would be enough? And they had a lot of trouble telling me what would feel like, like it would be enough, like they would be safe money-wise. So if a fairy godmother came down and waved their magic wand and said, okay, Ada, I'm going to give you that, that cushy corner office and an executive assistant and lunches in the Condé Nast cafeteria, would you take it now? Uh, I don't think I would take it now. I think, I think, I mean, ask me again in a year and it might be different. Um, but at this moment <laughs> in time, I feel like I, because I've had to make my own life and my own career um, cobbled together from all these different things like freelancing and ghosting and teaching and writing my own books. Like, I feel like I've been able to, to, to say all the things I want to say in the world in one form or another. And I feel like that's a great, that's a great gift as a writer to have that, those outlets and, um, and to feel, to feel heard and seen. And, um, and like, you know, I get messages every day from people who read things I write and, and most of them are grateful. And, um, and that's, that's all I could ask for. That's it for today's show. Thank you to my producer, Mary Dew, and thanks to the team at HBR, to our guests for sharing their experiences and truth, thanks to our advertisers, and for you, the listeners. I'm so grateful for your feedback. You can always email anxiousachiever at gmail.com or tweet me at moraam. And if you love the show, tell your friends or subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Mora Aaron's Mealy. 